Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. was the opening of the Royal Shakespeare Company's 2017 production of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Welcome to The Plays the Thing, Act One of The Tempest. I'm Tim McIntosh, and I'm joined by Heidi White for six episodes about one of William Shakespeare's final plays, The Tempest. How are you, Heidi? I am doing great, and I'm so excited to be here. You like The Tempest, don't you? I love The Tempest. I mean, who doesn't love this play? It is just, it's magical. It has this aura of wonder and it's very complex and it's an actor's dream. It's a literary kind of person's dream. It's it's just lovely. It's, I'm kind of glad that we are doing it on the heels of Othello because it's everything that Othello is not. Othello Mm. is is a wonderful play, but it is the opposite of whimsical. And I think of when I think of the Tempest and when I think of Midsummer Night's Dream and some of the other they're sometimes called romances, they're sometimes called tragic comedies from Shakespeare. They're so whimsical and magical and playful. And Othello was so claustrophobic and it was brutal realism. And there's a place for that. There's I love that play, but boy, it's nice to breathe the fresh air of the Tempest coming out of Othello. I agree. This is exciting. Although I wasn't on Othello and I can't wait to listen to them, but you're right. There's just such a stark contrast, which speaks to Shakespeare's versatility as a playwright, uh, which, you know, we talk about all the time on this podcast, but there is just something truly magical about the Tempest. Heidi, let me set up the play, kind of the action of the play. So this is, they believe, one of the only plays that Shakespeare did not kind of borrow a plot from elsewhere. This is apparently the plot is completely of his own making. And it starts with a tempest, a big shipwreck. And so several men are returning from a wedding. And the wedding was in North Africa. And... Um, sorry, I'm getting out my notes, Heidi. I, I should be able to just do this from memory. When David calls on me, I can do it from memory. But when I call on myself, I struggle to do it from memory. So I'm getting my notes out. Thank you, audience. So, um, big shipwreck and several Italian men are, are on the ship and the ship is crushed. It's washed ashore. And then we cut to the actual island. And on the island, there's a conversation between a father and daughter. 
And we find out pretty soon, Heidi, that um, the father, Prospero, seems to have some sort of magical abilities because his daughter, Miranda, alludes to it. And we also find out that this shipwreck in some way is kind of foreordained, that fate kind of played a role in it. So the background is that Prospero, the father who has these magical um, powers, who is the, the father of Miranda, is brothers with Antonio. And Antonio, his brother, has betrayed him, betrayed him back in Italy so that he could gain a higher post. And Prospero was kind of sent off. We'll talk more about that as the play goes on. So Antonio is there with two brothers, Alonzo and Sebastian, who are going to end up actually conspiring against Alonzo. But Prospero's main goal in the early part of this play, actually throughout the whole play, but his main goal in setting up this shipwreck is so that he can be sort of get his revenge on Antonio, his brother. And also he's really looking to play matchmaker for his daughter, Miranda. And just a comment for me, the heartbeat of the play is easy to lose because of all the kind of magical, fantastical elements about the play. And because there's so much fun, you know, a couple of the shipmates get drunk with Caliban, this kind of wild servant slave of Prosperous. But it's easy to lose track of the fact that the thing that really moves the play forward is Prospero's love and affection for his daughter, Miranda. Right. And I, I have seen some productions in which Prospero is played by this kind of cold wizard character who, you know, loves to be the puppet master, but his affection for his daughter is not the driving force. For me, that's the driving force of the play is his desire to see her happy and to see her married. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, that part of the play is additionally fun because Miranda's unique, isn't she, Heidi? She is unique. She's a special creation of Shakespeare. In fact, I think many, many of these characters are unique creations of Shakespeare. Although, as you've alluded to, uh, the, the, the play itself is or the plot that Shakespeare wrote, he made up himself. At least that's what history seems to indicate. We don't have any original source for the exact plot of this play like we do for many other of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, But many of the themes, the tropes, the motifs are very common in Shakespeare. And it's almost like he took all these things that he loves and has been exploring in individual ways throughout many other plays and put them in The Tempest, Mm -hmm. which is... Uh, understood to be one of his final plays. We can date this play with a lot of precision. It was performed the first time that we know of, that we can find in the historical record in 1611 for King James, as interestingly, a celebration for King James's daughter's wedding, which is something, there's the wedding of two daughters in this play. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but some of the material that Shakespeare draws upon wasn't even available until 1610. So we really can date this play with a lot of precision and it's right before he retired. So it is, uh, you used the phrase the other day to me, um, one, uh, kind of understood to be Shakespeare's swan song. And I love that. There's kind of a poetic feel to that, that this uniquely Shakespearean play with all of these different elements and threads that he explores in other plays, and he kind of puts them here with an original plot, these unique characters like Miranda and Prospero and Caliban. Um, and, And we get to, as lovers of Shakespeare, immerse ourselves. I think in a, you know, many Shakespearean scholars think that this play was unique even to Shakespeare, that it mm. felt special to him. Mm. Uh, we don't know that, but there is something in this play that feels very much like you're, we're really inside of this wonderful playwright. He's almost like a character in the, in, in the play. You can't forget about him while you're reading it. 
And surely if he is a character in the play, um, he's Prospero. He's the magician. And when we get to act four and maybe before then, we'll read what a lot of scholars kind of interpret to be Shakespeare's sign off. There's a beautiful monologue Mm -hmm. that Prospero has that begins, our revels are now ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And the rest of the monologue, it really does sound like Shakespeare is recognizing his own retirement is at hand and his work has come to an end. And his, his work is similar to that of a, music, of a magician. He brings these characters to life, characters like Ariel and Caliban, and he bids them do what he does as Prospero bids them do what he wants done. And so there is something, e- even if scholars make too much out of that, that monologue, it just fits so snugly mm-hmm. with how we perceive Shakespeare's life and work to be, that it's hard to not read that close that monologue in Act 4 from Prospero as, as Shakespeare kind of bidding adieu to the stage. Right, right. Well, in Prospero... Is I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about Prospero. I find Prospero an incredibly compelling character, a truly mysterious character. Not only is his art mysterious, but he himself, like who could fathom the depths of Prospero? And uh, critics have tried over the centuries, actors have made choices with this character, as you alluded to, but he is an enigma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I love enigmas. So he's my favorite character by far. Not because I think he's morally outstanding, um, right, although some right. people do, but I just, I read this character and I'm like, who are you? You know, the psychologist in me wakes up and is like, who is this man? I, I want to know, we'll have to talk about Heidi, what we think about Prospero's moral standing. Is he intended oh, yeah. to be? a good character, a dubious character, or maybe even kind of an amoral character. I mean, if he is the magician that's causing this whole scene on the island to take place, is he intended to be sort of kind of the the amoral storyteller and not really a character in the play, even though he obviously is a character in the play? Do you have any... Do you have any first thoughts about that? Right. So, you know, he is, the question about Prospero is, is he playing God or is he intended to be, by Shakespeare, to be a godlike figure? So to your point, does he kind of transcend uh, the normal, quote, air quote, rules for ordinary folk because he has this skill and this wisdom that goes beyond them. Uh, and so he's allowed to do things that ordinary mortals like you and me wouldn't be allowed to do. And is that the, the, the space he's supposed to inhabit in this play? And that seems to be the space he claims for himself mm-hmm. throughout the play until act four, um, until his work is done. Um, or is he overstepping into realms that don't belong to mortals that should be inhabited only by God. And uh, the reader and the, or the actor or the critic makes that decision as they're reading the play. Mm. Right? It's very hard to discern uh, what, what, the, what Shakespeare necessarily intended for Prospero because yeah. he, he, there's, there's all of these you know, it's a tempest. It's a storm. It's it's chaos and mystery. That's where you're. That's how the play opens, and that's how it feels the whole time. Yeah. And so, uh, Prospero's attempt to create order out of this chaos is, you know, that's definitely what he's trying to do. But then, if you kind of take one step back, and this is where the play gets very complex and very very brilliant, is when you take that step back, the chaos was started by Prospero himself. He was the one mm-hmm. who made created the tempest. So what do we make of that? Yeah, right. And that's where his ambiguity 
uh, is threaded throughout the whole play. And I don't think Shakespeare makes it clear. And if Shakespeare is uh, inhabiting Prospero himself, I find that very interesting because Shakespeare doesn't necessarily seem to make any moral claim about Prospero. He just tells the story of Prospero and we interpret him how we will. Making Prospero a little bit more complicated as if he needed it is his relationship with these two. They refer to themselves as, or he refers to them as slaves, Ariel Uh and Caliban. Um, Heidi, tell us, introduce these characters. Who are Ariel and Caliban? What are they about? And what are they trying to accomplish in the play? Right. Well, we meet Ariel first. We have our, our Tempest scene, Act 1, Scene 1, in which there is this mighty storm and the sailors on the boat are, and I, want, I do want to come back to this scene in a bit, uh, they, they make some claims as though the storm is equalizing the hierarchy, right? Mm. So mm-hmm. everybody's just a human in the storm, whether you're the lowest mm-hmm. sailor or whether you're the king who's on the ship, which they have the king of Naples and his son Ferdinand on the ship. And they make reference to the storm being of nature because how could they know that it's conjured by a magician, right? Like they, it's just a storm to them. Right. So um, they talk about that. Meanwhile, in Act One, Scene Two, we meet Prospero and Miranda, in which Prospero is. Uh, He's he's conjured the storm. He's controlling the storm. Miranda comes in and is like, "Dad, what are you doing?" And then he tells her the story of the backstory of her birth and how he was the Duke of Milan and he was usurped by his brother and put out to sea with his only daughter Miranda. Uh, uh, and and they end up exiled on this island where they are. And it's a magical place. And that's where Ariel enters. Prospero puts Miranda into a magical sleep after he's done explaining to her her the backstory of her life. She's overwhelmed by it. He puts her to sleep so that he can continue to do his will through magic. So the first thing he does is he calls the spirit Ariel to him. And Ariel uh, is a spirit who can do magic and he has been enslaved in the past to a witch named Sycorax, and she kind of mm-hmm. haunts the story. Uh, she's in the background. Uh, she had, uh, she's a human woman who was uh, involved in black magic, and she got pregnant by the devil. We learn this in this scene. Uh, and so the law being at the time that even if a woman was a witch, her sentence of death uh, by hanging or drowning would be commuted or burning, excuse me, would be commuted or she'd be let off the hook because she was pregnant. So she ends up on this island and gives birth to Caliban, who I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, She has the servant, Ariel, though, and Ariel has to do her bidding. He's a servant who's enslaved, a bit like a genie, so that the he has to do the bidding of his master, whether he wants to or not. But one thing we learn about Ariel that I love, and these two contrasting spirits thread throughout the play, and they're really important. Ariel has what Shakespeare calls a delicate nature. So Mm. he has a moral compass. He he doesn't want to do the evil bidding of his masters. Uh, And so he doesn't want to work for Sycorax. And so she imprisons him in a pine tree, a cloven pine, which kind of harkens back to uh, the king, the Arthurian legend in which Merlin is imprisoned in a pine for a, a time. Uh, so anyway, he, Ariel's imprisoned in a cloven pine um, and Prospero sets him free. And because Prospero sets him free from the pine, then now Ariel has to work for Prospero. And so throughout the play, it is Ariel who does the magical bidding of Prospero. Ariel is involved in everything. Ariel does good. Ariel does the will of Prospero, whether he agrees with it or not. But it's very clear that Ariel desires to do what is good and is troubled by having to do the bidding of his master that, that he has moral questions about. Caliban, on the other hand, is a very different story. And I've been <laughs> a talking a while. Story. Why don't I pass off Caliban to you? Caliban is, in many ways, um, he, he's like Ariel in that he is a slave. But in almost every way, he is the antithesis. Ariel is airy, mm-hmm. delicate, um, 
Caliban is earthy. He's he seems to be driven by hunger, by kind of his brute needs. Um, he also was saved by Prospero, different circumstances, but saved by Prospero. Um, but his resentfulness toward Prospero is much more pronounced than is Ariel's. But he also, like Ariel, has received this promise at the beginning of the play from Prospero that if he continues to do his will, then if Prospero can kind of pull off this last magic trick, get his daughter married, um, make things right between his brother who wronged him, then Caliban gets to have his freedom. Um, you know that the, um, the allegory from Plato, Heidi, of the charioteer, I wonder how mm -hmm. familiar, like if you've looked at it recently. Um, these three characters, Prospero, Ariel, and Caliban, for me, almost perfectly match up with Plato's chariot allegory. So for those that aren't familiar with it in the Phaedrus, in Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates tells the story of basically what the human psyche is like. And he, he likens it to a charioteer that has, that is drawn by two horses, a black horse and a white horse. Um, the white horse is kind of, I want to say it's, it's, It'd be a mistake to say it's the good horse, but it's driven by a moral impulse. It's, it's positive. And, and that seems to map onto Ariel really neatly. On the other hand, the black horse is kind of driven by these physical impulses. Yeah, the appetites. need to eat appetites. That's right. And in the chariot is the rational charioteer. Prospero, it seems like. And the rational has to get these two horses to kind of operate in conjunction with each other to accomplish what the rational soul wants on its way to heaven. This is the soul's ultimate aim is to achieve heaven. And I, for me, these two characters, these three characters fit so well with that allegory and Shakespeare surely knew the allegory that I even wonder if he kind of, if he borrowed it to put them in his play. I love that. I think that's excellent. And if I was teaching this play, I would, I, I would, I would thread that in there. That's what we're always looking for in classical education and the study of Western culture, right? It's how do these things fit together? How do they relate? And I think this is an excellent, excellent way to understand the conflict and the drama uh, between these characters. Another layer of the Prospero, Caliban, Ariel triangle mm. uh, is, if that's kind of that, that center layer, right? The, um, the, the inner man kind of layer. And then as Plato also taught us, the city is like the man, right? So there's another right. kind of circle around that of the society and the commentary that this play might potentially be making on its own time and even maybe speaking into our time. So uh, postmodern critics will love this. Uh, they're always looking for colonial connections in works of literature and lo love it so much that they reach for it when it isn't even there. But in The Tempest, it is overtly there. So at the time that this play was written, uh, the, the old world was colonizing the new world. And uh, so we had, this was written right before Jamestown. So we had explorers going all over, finding islands, uh, and direct, interestingly enough, and you probably know this, Tim, directly before this play was written in 1610, England would have gotten word that there had been a shipwreck of a, an English explorer, uh, Thomas Gates, I think his name was, but hmm. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but anyway, this explorer had been stranded on an island uh, in in the Atlantic and had had to, with his crew, and had had to kind of 
make his way there, build a life there. And England was fascinated by this. Uh, this was in the pop culture, kind of in the public square, this conversation of what would it be like for that Western civilization to colonize the new world. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get, I mean, this is the play where we get the, the, the quote that Aldous Huxley used, the, oh, brave new world. Mm-hmm. That's from the Tempest. Uh, so this, this idea of uh, the civilized culture uh, appropriating native cultures, which again, this is a very contemporary idea, but it is in the Tempest um, that, you have Prospero, this like cultured man with his books and his ability to control nature. And he is on the island subduing the native elements to do his will. And all they want to do is be free. Mm-hmm. And the question of is he doing good or is he doing harm is threaded throughout this entire play. And there is somewhat of an answer to that, but there's also an ambiguity to it. Particularly uh, in Act 1, we see the way that Prospero talks to both Caliban and Ariel. Uh, this, his words, whether or not the actions that they do are good or bad, and the actions that he's bidding them to do, uh, his air of authority, the way that he talks to them, as you pointed out, calling them slaves, telling them he will give them freedom if they do his will, uh, the idea of subduing them uh, works on that psychological and that individual level that you're talking about, but it also works on a societal level and brings up some of the same questions of what, what does it mean to be civilized? Who is the savage? Who is, and that's threaded throughout the play, not necessarily Prospero. He's never savage. But some of the other characters that come from the old world are. Um, so that that's that's brought up in this first act as well. Heidi, let's listen to um, Act One, Scene Two. Caliban talking about his who he his captor Prospero, who he believes is deceitful. Mm-hmm. This island's mine by Sycorax, my mother, which thou. Takest from me. When thou camest first, thou strokest me and made much of me. Wouldst give me water with berries in it, and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less that burn by day and night. Then I loved thee, and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Cursed be I that did so. All the charms of Sycorax, toads, beetles, bats, light on you. For I am all the subjects that you have, which first was mine own king. And here, you stime in this hard rock, whilst you do keep from me the rest of the island. That was Herb Goffrin's playing the role of Caliban addressing his captor, his deceitful captor, according to Caliban, Prospero, in Act 1, Scene 2 of The Tempest. Remember, everybody, you can join the conversation online on Facebook through Close Reads through the discussion group or on Instagram or Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can also email us by writing to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can also sign up for our newsletter at closereads.substack.com. Heidi, let's talk about the other crew of characters who are the Italians. They're the, the ones who are shipwrecked. It, it, it becomes pretty clear that these are, uh, how do you say it? These are not the most respectable characters. Not only... I mean, their attitude toward this world that they've landed in, at least some of them, is um, <laughs> they seem estranged from nature, do these Italians. And, and these are wealthy men. These are men of nobility. And they've just been kind of uh, almost drowned. And now they have got to kind of find their way. And with the exception of Ferdinand, who 
will fall in love with Miranda at first sight. And with the exception of Gonzalo, the advisor to Alonzo, the Italians are just, oh gosh, I'm trying to be gracious. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not admirable characters when we start the play. Right. And almost from the get-go, they begin conspiring with each other, against each other. And at the middle of it all is Antonio, the brother of Prospero. He is kind of working with Sebastian to overthrow Alonzo so that they can elevate their stature when they get back to Milan. Um, so right away in the play, we see that these these... Italian characters are, <laughs> we can see, we can totally understand why Prospero wants to get his revenge because these are not, these are not respectable men. Right. Right. Well, and let's take those two levels we were just talking about, right? Let's go to the level of the soul, this, this circle of the soul. Then if, if the island is a picture of the soul and Prospero is uh, the, um, the ruler, the mind, right? Um, the noose, the uh, the one who is to rule the soul, uh, and which I'm not trying to reduce it to an allegory. I'm, I'm really not. Right, this is its right. own story in its own right. I'm not. I'm not reducing it, but uh, it works on this level, is what. It, and then Caliban is kind of the the internal darkness, what Freud might call the id. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Ariel is that, what Freud might call the ego. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but How do you explain into- those, ex- sorry to interrupt you, explain those, the it and the ego in Freud's terminology. Sure. Well, and Freud was not a Platonist, but it's likely he got, and he was, man, I, I do not want to sound like I'm advocating for Freud's theory of, uh, for Freud's anthropology. I am not. He was in You've, many You ways. expressed your displeasure about an him. Evil man. But, um, but in, there are some things that he gets right. And I think that this is one of those things because it follows in Plato's footsteps, right? This, um, so he labeled these three parts of the soul. Um, if we do indeed have a tripartite or a three-part soul, uh, Prospero would be what Freud called the superego or the 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 part of the soul that rules the other parts that subdues it, um, either for good or for evil. Um, and, and then the ego is the parts of our inner life that interacts with our outer life, um, that follows the rules, uh, that sets the stage that, that has will and reason. Um, and, and then the id is that dark part of us that is solely appetite, that is feed me, feed me, you know, at the little shop of horrors, feed me, Seymour, that, that is never satisfied, uh, that is driven entirely for its own satisfaction. And, and all of us know what that shadow part, the Caliban part, the id part feels like. And we spend our lives trying to subdue that or to nourish it and it enslaves us Mm. and um so and in a sense i do think that freud does get some of that right Mm. about the conflict between good and evil in each of us and christians of course have a completely uh a a different understanding of it we wouldn't necessarily call it the id the ego and the superego we would say the war between the flesh and the spirit and um and and who and the the church fathers called the Prospero part of us the the noose, uh, the the N O U S N O U S yes the noetic part of us the part of us that rules over um, that that communes with God uh, and is therefore either darkened or enlightened by the Spirit to subdue and rule over us. That's why we in classical education talk a lot about uh, ruling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's Dante gets that idea. Once you get to the top of the mountain, once you mm-hmm. are ruled by the noose, once the noose has been enlightened and brought back to life because it is dead in our sins, right? Then, uh, then you, we are crowned and mitered Lord of ourselves. So if we take that allegory into the tempest, which I think does work in that inner level, then we have the internal world of this island 
Um, mm-hmm. And that, that is Prospero, that is Miranda, the object of his love, um, that is, uh, and, and in many ways that, the, the taming of the power hungry part of Prospero, right? When he has yeah. somebody to love, to do good to, right? Yeah. Um, and then we also have Caliban, this darkness, the, the flesh and Ariel, uh, the, the spirit in the sense of wants to do good, but has to do the bidding of a master, right? right. Must be under authority in order to accomplish what is good. Um, then the outside forces, the Italians that you're talking about, uh, that you're talking about are, are that which invade the soul. Yeah. Right. They're, yeah. they're temptations to evil or else they are gifts like Ferdinand's that is going to do good to the soul. Um, and, and, and become the partner in this life that moves us beyond ourselves into the outside world. And so I think that that works in the Tempest. I also think it works on the, that, that other level, that societal level, that colonial level, uh, that we have these, quote, civilized men, Antonio and Sebastian, who end up being just as power-hungry and driven by their own appetites as Caliban is. Right. And so you cannot say that there is this division between the good civilized and the evil native or the noble savage and the, you know, evil usurping outside force. Like what, what Shakespeare seems to be saying with The Tempest, as he says in every play, which is why I love Shakespeare as a supreme humanist, is the dividing line of good and evil goes, between the, goes with, through the human heart. That's from Solzhenitsyn. That what Shakespeare seems to be saying is you don't get to say just because I'm civilized or just because I'm a savage that I'm either good or evil, noble or not. I, it is your choices that make you who you are. And we see that in The Tempest. One of my um, first moments, Heidi, where I kind of started to, like, I don't know, when my cerebrum fused as a young man, or I just started to kind of like get that there was a bigger world out there than just sports and making jokes with my pimply high school friends. Actually, it <laughs> might have been like the year after high school. I saw a movie, and I bet you've seen it too, um, the Kevin Costner movie. Oh, gosh, I've forgotten the name of it. What's the name of it when he goes out and he's living on the frontier with Native Americans? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Wolf. The, yeah. What is wrong with us? All right. Dances with wolves. Dances with wolves. Thank you. Yes. That was embarrassing. That I know. Embarrassing. Well, I was trying. I was thinking running with the wolf, and that was totally yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I knew it was. But you know, we're dancing. We're not running. Dance. <laughs> yep. So I went to go. I went to go see Dances with Wolves, and I loved it. And I actually still love that movie. I saw it again not long ago, and it stands for me. It stands up. It's a really good movie. I loved it, and so I I was raving to my parents about it, and I was still living at home, and I remember it was like a a Saturday evening and my parents went to go see the May. <laughs> I remember this so vividly and I'm sitting on the couch and they walk in having just seen Dances with Wolves and mom walks in the door first and I said, so what did you think? And she said, um, uh, ask your father. Oh my. And I said, oh, what is, I wonder, I wonder what that means. Dad walks in. Dad, what'd you think? Um, uh, and I was like, come on, dad, what'd you think? You didn't like it? And he's like, it had a little, a little too much Rousseau in it. And I thought, I don't wow. know what that, I don't know what that means. I didn't know who Rousseau was. I didn't know anything like that. So, um, I love that response. <laughs> it's a really, that's an educated man's response. So he right. had to kind of walk me through who Rousseau was. And All right. So walk us through it. What does that mean? You mentioned kind of one of his primary platforms, uh, Rousseau's primary platforms, which is this idea that the chief problem of mankind is civilization. And that really, if we were just left in a natural state, we would kind of all be good. We would be unfettered by the chains of civilization and would seek our own good. It's a very kind of like when you look at it in retrospect, it's a very, very silly notion. I mean, there are parts of it that I think are kind of redeemable, but 
it's one of these really big ideas that, <laughs> that you're like, wow, I, I, I don't know how that one gathered so much cachet because it, I just don't buy that at all. Anyway, I think there is a lot of Rousseau in Dances with Wolves. And I think you're right. I think The Tempest is much more, a much more sophisticated treatment of the whole question of what would happen to a human being if just left kind of without the civilizing influences of society. And I don't think either one of us, Heidi, are saying that civilization is an unmitigated good. No, there neither are, is there Shakespeare. Are civiliz- yeah, right. And, right. Um, but I do think that Shakespeare has a vision of the kind of refining, that a healthy civilization refines um, the psyche in such a way that um, it kind of readies it, it readies the psyche to be healthy, to have relationships, to be able to hopefully even manage itself, govern itself so that it has less need of being governed by, by somebody else. I, I, another little quick story, it just is fitting. I, I coach a middle school boys soccer team. Talk and I feel the noble savage, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's so, I mean, it's coaching them is so much fun and it's so much frustration for the reasons that we're talking about. The frustration is they are, they're little savages. Right. They just, there's, you know, like the best of them is still developmentally, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade developmentally is just a wild man, just a wild man. And now we've set them free on a big open field with nothing but goalposts and a ball, you know, like their, their savagery comes out. We had a game a couple of nights ago and the other team was um, very, very chippy with us. They were kind of kicking our ankles. They were fouling us. And my team was getting upset and I, and I didn't blame them at all. So fortunately, before it got out of control, we had halftime. So I got, got to talk to them. And the thing that I told them was they came to me with all of their complaints. And I reminded them, listen, you guys, we have to manage ourselves. We cannot respond to them. We have to learn to rule ourselves. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to the referee. We're going to respectfully ask him to look at what's going on. and then. If it happens even in the second half, we're going to continue to rule ourselves. We're not going to react to like whatever's given us. And oh my gosh, Heidi, I can like brag about them because they're not my kids. And they just went out and did it. Huh. They just went out and did it. Our captain went to go talk to the referee. The referee made good calls in the second half. When the other team got chippy, we just managed ourselves. They played a great game. They were just such little brave soldiers and they did not like fall into this sort of Taliban spirit of just kind of like, you know, getting reactive and going after the other team. It was magical. It is. Well, and I think that that's almost a perfect analogy of what's going on here in the Tempest. And, and I'm going to point out, if we go back to act one, scene one, almost every line in act one, scene one, which is the Tempest scene, right? It opens with a Tempest. Like there's, there you go. Shakespeare's like, you want a Tempest? It's in the title. Here you go. So the in the Tempest scene, um, there's this line that goes to exactly what you're saying. It is line 15, and it's perfect. And it's, how do you say that? It's not Gonzalo. How do you say that guy's name? The Botswin? Bot- oh, Boson. Boson. He's the Boson. Yeah. Thank it's you. It's spelled Boatswain, but it's, it's not it. I knew it right. wasn't that, right. but I didn't know how to say it. Um, so the Boson says, What cares these roarers for the name of king? Mm. Now, this line, I just think one of the things I love about this play that I hope that we 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 don't get so lost in the themes that we miss it is the language of this play is absolutely mm. perfect. Like it's almost every line has these multiple levels of meaning. Um, and 
the the way it flows, the way it sounds like Shakespeare is like par excellence in this play. It's just perfect. That line, uh, what cares these roars for the, uh, for the name of King. So part of it, let's look at the, the, the obvious level, what cares these roars, these waves that are being tossed up by the tempest? What do they care for the name of King? So he's, they, he's saying, you know, I can't tell these waves what to do. Like they don't answer to anybody. Right. I can't stop them from taking the, from destroying the ship. Another layer of meaning with that uh, is that roarers is an, in the slang of the time and was another word for mob, for the mob. Huh. So huh. what cares the, this, this goes to what you were saying about your little savages on the soccer fields, yeah. right? What do they care for the name of King? Because that we're already alluding to the fact that there's going to be a societal contemplation in this. And there's going to be a tempest that upsets the surrounding society. Mm. And what do they care for the name of King, which goes for then this idea of the storm that equalizes the hierarchy. The King is in just as much danger as the, as, as, yes. as anybody else on the ship, just because he's the King, he's not exempt from being destroyed and, in, in a shipwreck. Um, and it also just kind of speaks for the terror of what it would be like to be in a tempest. As you point out, this is a play. Uh, we got to hear it at the beginning of the podcast uh, that, that these aren't just words on, they're not intended to be just words on a page where they're intended to be embodied. It's supposed to feel chaotic and scary mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. in a shipwreck in a storm. But what's really interesting is that this line then, of course, is deeply ironic because who is it that caused the storm? It's Prospero. Mm -hmm. Prospero manipulated nature through his art to create a storm. So in every way, these roarers do answer to a king. There is an authority over them. But the, pe- the ordinary people who are affected by it don't know that. Mm. So there's a very deep irony as well that even at this point, because it's Act 1, Scene 1, even the audience isn't yet in on the secret. So they're taking this line at first value if they're even noticing it at all. Right? And then another layer of contemplation is what we get from Shakespeare all the time, his brilliance, which is he, as a playwright, is always commenting and contemplating and meditating and reflecting on the nature of his art, which is I'm creating this world, this Island that is the play. Mm. And so he is the creator of Prospero. Who's the creator of the storm. And so there's just all these absolutely magnificent layers of meaning in this play. Um, all captured in kind of this one little line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to back up just for a second and talk about these, these last four plays. So scholars think that the last four plays are in no particular order. Uh, the Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Cymbeline, and Pericles. And in all of them, there are kind of these fantastical elements that are all throughout, especially The Tempest. Um, as an example, in The Winter's Tale, one of the main characters is turned, we, we think that she dies and then she comes back to life at the very end of the play. And it's not really explained how she came back to life or maybe she didn't die. So, in all of these last plays, there's magical, fantastic elements about them. And I think there's more magic in this probably than any other play with the possible exception of um, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And yes, I, I do love that <laughs> that conceit allows, uh, allows Prospero to basically manage the entire movement of the play the relationships of the characters and and i saw one production and i thought that the way that they showed this was so clever heidi i saw it in oregon at the um 
in Ashland, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is just world-renowned. I've talked about it before. Prospero's cloak, which he says in the fur in the gosh, the second scene when he's talking to Miranda, he says, I'm gonna take off my cloak and basically like no magic for a while. Okay. No magic for a while. When he first appeared in this production that I saw in Oregon, his cloak, he kind of came up from out of the ground. And his cloak was this long piece of fabric that when he came up from out of the ground, you saw that the cloak was attached to this kind of canvassy material that looked like earth in some ways um, that that's covered the entire cool. school. Oh, it was so brilliant. I so love that. Gave the impression that his cloak kind of covered all of nature and had an influence upon all of nature. I mean, it was wow. It was a stunning little production moment. I love um, that. Yeah, I really loved it too. I've recommended on the Facebook group that if people want to watch along instead of just reading along, I highly, highly recommend this Royal Shakespeare Company version from 2017. I don't know that you would recognize any of the actors like you would in... There was a Hollywood version where Helen Mirren plays Prospero. I haven't seen that, so I can't recommend it or not recommend it. But the RSC version 2017, which is free, it's on YouTube. It is so good. And the production values are so high. And the way that they... Just one little tease for it. The way that they introduce Ariel into the play, I think is just superb and magical. And it shows kind of like what modern theaters can do because production values have leapt forward because of technology. They've leapt so far forward. I think that's worth watching. I've only watched through the first three acts, so I cannot say whether it's kid appropriate um, for the last two acts, but at least the first three are Fine. There's the usual Shakespeare punning on sex. That's the way that it is. It's that's <laughs> just that's our guy. It's part of what makes him so fun. Um, yeah. If you're if you're worried about that, there are a couple of sprinklings of that, but nothing too egregious. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what you just said about nature and Prospero's cloak is. I mean, that's just brilliant. Um, it is. I mean, that makes it an objective correlative of one of the underlying contemplations of the play, which is the question of nature and nurture. There's a lot of references to uh, parents and children, progeny being different from their parents or being the same as their parents. There's a lot of speculation about, uh, you know, is Caliban doomed from the start because his father is the devil um, and his mother is a witch? Uh, And to be honest, that seems to be pretty generally accepted by everybody, except for Prospero, who we learn in Act 1, Scene 1, tried to educate Caliban away from his bad heredity. He tries, he teaches him, Miranda actually teaches Caliban how to speak. And when, you know, when he shakes his fist to her in that famous line about all I did with it was learn how to curse. Right, right. right. Um, And, uh, but Prospero met Caliban and took him under his wing and showed him secrets from his book. And then Caliban in return showed him secrets of the island, the geography of the island, how to access these native secrets that only natives would know about the resources, the natural resources of the island uh, that then Prospero brings into his art. And so there is this idea from the very beginning of the play, from the roots of the play, that there was an attempt to harmonize these two uh, forces and it failed. And the implication from Prospero is that Prospero says, well, you tried to rape my daughter. Mm -hmm. And Caliban responds with like, I wish it had worked so I could populate the the island with little Caliban. Um, But Caliban's then counter argument was you lied to me. You used me. And so, and, and that argument, I see it as unresolved in act one, scene one. I don't think there's, there's a statement that says that Caliban is wrong about that or that Prospero is wrong. Like, but 
but there is this contemplation of nature versus nurture and the attempt of Prospero to tame the id, the dark elements of the, the native elements of the island failed. Yeah. But Caliban has a compelling counter argument to it. Absolutely. He does. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've kind of been banging on Caliban and kind of like representing his worst attributes, but the feeling that I get in the play for Caliban is great sympathy Mm -hmm. and great sorrow for his plight. I mean, he's, he's alone. He's a misfit. He's forced to do the bidding of this master and sure the master kind of rescued him, but, um, rescued him into what, right. You know, into a thraldom of a different sort. So I, I think it's very, I think we are meant to have, despite Caliban's, the things that he's done before the play begins and the things that he does during the play, I think we're meant to have great sympathy for him. Right. And I, I agree. I definitely feel that. The same way when I read Merchant of Venice, I have great sympathy for Shylock. Um, whether the Elizabethan audience would have had that sympathy, I think right. it's there. I think it's embedded within the thread of the play. And I... I I think that in this way, um, and, and I hope that this doesn't come across as judging the past, but making a judgment, right? That those are two different things. I think that Shakespeare gets it writer, and I use that improper word intentionally. <laughs> like, I think in some ways, Shakespeare get its, gets it writer than Plato did. Mm. Because Plato does seem to, in the Republic, make the claim that you can educate people out of the embedded darkness in their soul. And I think Shakespeare's saying, no, you can't. You can rule that darkness, but you can't tame it. It's there within the human soul. It's there within any human society. And it is a scapegoat, but it is also truly dark by nature and it cannot be made right it cannot be made right and i think he's right about that i think he's right about that also and i do think all due respect to plato i think there's a well i don't want to bang on plato too much no yeah i love plato like i said i think shakespeare gets it writer but i'm not pitting them against each other because they're both asking the same question that is a mystery which is what do i do with the darkness in my soul what do i do about the darkness in society because it is a sad and tragic figure like as as caliban is i look at caliban and i i can't bring myself to hate him because i think that he is making a and leveling an accusation against prospero that is true yeah i think it is true yeah Heidi, what are you looking for in Act Two? Mm-hmm. What are the things that you're excited about? I think more of the same. When you get to Act One, you don't know. You know, this is the rising action part of of the the play structure. So uh, we don't know yet anything about the people in the ship. We know that that. Uh, so we're going to get to know them more. Um, I'm looking for more uh, exploration of. Ariel and Caliban, and I definitely want more about Prospero and Miranda's relationship. Yeah, that relationship and also the relationship between Ferdinand and Miranda, uh, which we won't, I think we won't see that until the top of Act Mm -hmm. 3, but Ferdinand and Miranda is so lovely because I love how Miranda is written. She apparently is beautiful, but she's also the only men that she's ever seen. Mm-hmm. are Caliban and Prospero. We're not sure that Ariel really counts. Ariel's this kind of like sexually amorphous character. Right. And so when Miranda does see Ferdinand, her <laughs> responses to him, she just thinks <laughs> quite literally, you know, he is the most beautiful man in the world. She's just overwhelmed by him. But her reaction is kind of juxtaposed with this sense that like she's such a nature girl. Right. You know, that, that she, his sort of, um, how do I say it? Some of his more masculine virtues are subdued and some of hers are elevated. Hmm. And so it makes for this, this very fun kind of interchange between the two of them. They do. They have a very sweet um, development of their, they, they just have a very pure interaction. They do. 
throughout the whole, which is different from, you know, there's, there's always a, a tangle up of, of the love, the development of, of love between characters and Shakespeare. But in this one, it isn't because they're making these terrible mistakes and misunderstanding each other. There's, there is just this purity that exists yeah. between them and the obstacles come from the outside, which I think right. is kind of a sweet thing in this play. What about you? What are you looking for? I also, I'm really looking forward to these two jesters, Trinculo and Stefano, um, who are going to come on and they're going to get drunk and they're going to get Caliban to get drunk. And it's a funny scene. And a it's sad a scene. very, very funny scene. I know it is. It is. It's both. It's, it's a tragic comedy. The whole play is a tragic yes. comedy. Yes. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Well, and can I, can I read this little, this, this Please. section from Ariel that I, I actually, for our listeners, I texted Tim this section. Um, it's a very, very famous bit of poetry from the Tempest, but it is famous for a reason. It is magnificent. Um, uh, so, and one thing about that we haven't really talked about yet is uh, Prospero has some kind of master plan. He's trying to bring something to fruition and it is the marriage between uh, overtly, at least right away off the bat, we know it's the marriage between Ferdinand and Miranda, but nothing is simple to Prospero. There's wheels within wheels. He's a labyrinth, right? So instead of just, and they fall in love at first sight, but that's not good enough for Prospero. He has to complicate that in some way. So he does. And we see that unfold throughout the play. And then there's also uh, another person who's on this shipwreck and now on the island is Antonio, his brother who has usurped him as the Duke of Milan. And so there is another aspect of Prospero's master plan that has to do with that. Uh, and all of the characters. And so the characters get lost on the island after the shipwreck and they have magical experiences. And one of the magical experiences that they have is, uh, is Fer- that Ferdinand has is that he hears music coming from nowhere and it is Ariel, invisible, singing to him. What an, um, I just, this, this play is just so magnificent. It just yeah. has this air of wonder and magic and unexpected, uh, you know, and all the things we're talking about, don't lose that mm. as you're reading mm. this play and watching pers- productions of this play. Just, I, th- I think more than, almost more than any play in Shakespeare other than Midsummer Night's Dream, just let it wash over you. Yeah. Like, don't just let it feel magical. You can come back to it. It's a great book. You can come back to it and you can think about all of these things. But at first, you just let it, let that wonder, that air of wonder permeate you. Um, imagine being lost on an island and then hearing music coming out of nowhere. It's a very eerie scene, but it's also a very beautiful scene. And um, so anyway, Ferdinand wakes up. He's been in a magical sleep. He wakes up and he hears uh, the music of Ariel and he's wondering about his father. And he comments, my father is that he, he's wondering if his father is dead. And then Ariel sings to him this song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. It's music just to say it. Mm. Full fathom five, thy father lies of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell. Ding dong, hark now, I hear them. This is such a famous line, and it's so beautiful. This idea that his father, which by the way, that the, the, the meter and the alliteration in that first line, full fathom five, thy father lies. Like you just want to chant it in your head. It gets stuck in your head just as it is. Um, of course, T.S. Eliot put this into the wasteland mm. um, and it, there's been allusions to it all throughout Western culture since then. Um, but this idea of Ariel is telling him his father has died, which is a lie because there's lies all over the place in this play that his father is dead, but that his body has been preserved, has been changed. It's been, it's a metamorphosis, right? There's a sea change and the body has been made into something rich and strange. So there's just this, these threads of mystery and beauty that are just uninterpretable, Mm. but 
like truly magnificent. They're also true at the same time. Although they're uninterpretable, they're also true. And that's just yeah. really, I don't know how Shakespeare even happened. I know I've said that a thousand times <laughs> on, the, on, right. on, on this. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking now, but don't miss the mystery and the magic of this play. And I, I'm probably going to sound like a broken clock, but see a production of it. See a mm-hmm. good production of it that can actually can like contribute resources to making it look and sound and smell magical. This is this is one to um, pay a little money for if you can if you can yeah. afford it and if you can get to it. This is one to pay money for. Hey Heidi, next week, Act Two. Looking forward to it. Me too. I can't wait. I love this play. So this is so fun. So everybody, thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want to get in touch with us, we've got the conversation happening on Facebook on the Close Reads discussion group. Uh, You can check us out on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can always email us if you've got questions or comments at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us at the Close Reads Podcast Network, thanks for listening and happy reading. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.